0: This is the eighth lecture in our course on logic for the International Catholic University. The title of this lecture is The Principles and Varieties of the Syllogism. Now, in our last lecture, we looked at the definition of the syllogism and the parts of the syllogism. The syllogism is speech in which two statements being given, called propositions, a third, called the conclusion, follows necessarily. The propositions are made of terms joined by a being verb. The conclusion follows just from the terms of those propositions, properly ordered. I want to emphasize, however, that the syllogism is a tool in words through which the mind reasons well. Therefore, we need to know more about the syllogism than its definition. We need to know how to make good syllogisms, just like before we needed to know how we make good definitions. And that's the purpose of this lecture, to make and identify good syllogisms. We'll make them by using the correct principles and we'll identify the good varieties. Our first task then is to look at the principles of the syllogism. Our second is to look at its varieties. Now, after Aristotle defines the syllogism, he divides it not so much into species as into degrees or gradations, into the perfect and the imperfect. Now, the difference between the perfect syllogism and the imperfect syllogism does not concern its necessity or certainty. The conclusion follows necessarily from both the perfect and the imperfect syllogism. The difference concerns its evidence or clarity. It concerns how clear it is, how obvious it is, that the conclusion follows from the premises. The perfect syllogism needs nothing else in order for someone to see that the conclusion follows from the premises. But the imperfect syllogism, though the conclusion follows from those premises necessarily, it's hard to see that the conclusion follows and therefore it needs something added to it in order to see that the conclusion follows. Let's look at an example. Once again, looking at chart number four, we have two syllogisms there. The first is a perfect syllogism. All triangles have three sides. All three-sided figures have 180 degrees. Therefore, all triangles have 180 degrees. It's obvious immediately when you look at that syllogism that the conclusion follows from the premises. But the other syllogism is not so clear. It says that no book is metal, every coin is metal, therefore no book is a coin. We could say this, the conclusion does necessarily follow from those premises. If the premises, propositions are true, then that conclusion has to be true. But that it does so follow is not so obvious. And what we need, Aristotle says, is we need to add some sort of proposition to make it obvious that that conclusion follows. We could say this, then. In perfect syllogisms, we do not need to add any other proposition in order to see that the conclusion necessarily follows. In the imperfect syllogisms, though the conclusion necessarily follows from just the given propositions, Nevertheless, we need to add another proposition to see clearly that it does so. Now, how we're going to find that other proposition is something we're gonna talk about in just a second. But first, I wanna proceed in the order that Aristotle does. So after he makes the distinction between perfect and imperfect syllogisms, he then goes on to give the principles of syllogisms. First, the principles which apply to all syllogisms. Second, the principles which apply to the imperfect syllogisms. He writes, we say that one term is predicated of all of another whenever no instance of the subject can be found of which the other term cannot also be asserted. To be predicated of none must be understood in the same way. Now. Those two principles are called the principles of all syllogisms, and they're often given these Latin names, Dici De Omni, Dici De Nulo, which translates into English as said of all and said of none. So, said of all, said of none are the principles of all syllogisms, or maybe we should put it this way. What it means for something, for the predicate to be said of all of the subject, or to be said of none of the subject, is a principle for every syllogism. Maybe we can best explain why it's a principle by an example, okay? We saw before that the phrase white is said of man means that white is predicated of man. And this occurs in a statement, man is white. Now, if we were to say white is said of all men, That would be because the subject man is used universally in the resulting statement, which would be, all men are white, or every man is white. Thus, the phrase set of all indicates that the predicate is attributed to the subject universally and not in virtue of a part. In a parallel way, the phrase set of none means that the predicate is denied of the subject universally we would say, for example, no man is white. Now, why are these principles of every syllogism? A syllogism, as we're going to find later, works only when at least one of the premises is universal. If we don't understand what a universal statement actually says then, we're not going to be able to understand the syllogism. So the understanding of the meaning of set of all is a principle for our understanding of how the syllogism works. And this is not just true for the perfect syllogisms, it's true also for the imperfect syllogisms. No syllogism would work unless we understood what that phrase set of all means. No syllogism would work unless we understood. What it is to be a universal statement. We said that set of all and set of none are the principles of all syllogisms, but the imperfect syllogisms, precisely because they're imperfect, need more principles in order to make it clear that the conclusion follows from the premises. Those principles Aristotle will call the rules of conversion of propositions. And so the next thing we need to talk about are those rules for the conversion of propositions. First of all, we ought to understand what Aristotle means when he says conversion of propositions. To convert a proposition is to switch the subject and predicate of it. For example, the conversion of the proposition, no book is metal, is the proposition, no metal thing is a book. Now, Aristotle covers the conversion of propositions, but not the conversion of statements. Because, remember, a statement is made of a noun and a verb. And the verb we noted before is always the predicate. The noun is always the subject. So you cannot convert the parts of a statement. Even if you were to switch their temporal order, for example, if I were to switch the temporal order of the statement, man runs, into saying runs man, still you would understand runs to be the verb predicated of the noun man. But the statement, when it becomes a proposition, is analyzed differently because it's divided not into a noun and verb, but into terms, and the verb aspect which is the to be verb, the being verb, is or are or is not, is taken as a third part of the proposition. And therefore, since the predicate in a proposition is not necessarily a verb, it does not have to be a predicate and can be switched with the subject. And so, for example, if we were to say, man is running, To convert that proposition, we would say, the running thing is a man. Now, we can't convert every proposition in any way we want to. There are going to be rules for the conversion of propositions. And so, what we need to do next is to go over the rules that Aristotle gives for the conversion of propositions. When we discuss the imperfect syllogisms, we'll see how those rules are important as principles of those syllogisms. Let's look at the first rule. The first rule covers the universal denial. It says that if it's true that no B is A, it will also be true that no A is B. Our example was a universal denial. If it's true that no book is metal, it's also true that no metal thing is a book. Now the second rule concerns the universal affirmation, and it's a bit different from the rule for the universal denial. The universal affirmation does not convert into another universal affirmation, but rather into a particular affirmation. Every B is A converts into Some A is B. And the reason it does not convert into a universal is clear from an example. We can say quite truly that every man is an animal, but we cannot say that every animal is a man. What we can say, however, is that some animals are men. So the universal affirmation converts into a particular affirmation. The third rule is the conversion of the particular affirmation. If it's true that some B is A, it's also true that some A is B. For example, if it's true that some men are tan, it's also true that some tan things are men. Now the last rule is the rule for the particular denial, and it's very simple, the particular denial does not convert. And we can see why if we look at an example. If the particular denial were to convert, it seems likely that it would convert into another particular denial. So if some B is not A were convertible at all, it would seem to be convertible into some A is not B. But an example makes it clear that that cannot be a universal rule because it's true that some animals are not men. But it is never true that some men are not animals. So just from looking at that example, we see that the particular denial cannot be converted. We've gone over the two sets of principles for the syllogism. We've looked at the meanings of the set of all and set of none. And we've looked at the rules for the conversion of propositions. At this point, we're ready to look at the varieties of syllogisms. Now, Aristotle first discusses the perfect syllogisms, and then he discusses the imperfect ones. Aristotle identifies four perfect syllogisms, which scholastic logicians have called the four moods of the perfect syllogism. So a mood is a variety of syllogism. First, we're going to look at the process Aristotle uses to discover the perfect syllogisms. Then we're going to look at the results of that process. And finally, we're going to find and label the parts of the resulting syllogisms. Now, in general, this is how Aristotle's process works. Every syllogism has two premises, two propositions which make it up, and those propositions when put together can produce one main conclusion. Now, those two propositions come in four varieties, the four kinds of propositions or statements. Therefore, when we put it all together, we find that there are 16 possibilities for perfect syllogisms, 16 ways of combining propositions in order to yield conclusions. Now, Aristotle goes through all 16 possibilities one by one, and he finds that only four of them actually yield conclusions. The other 12 do not. Now, he shows that the four that do yield conclusions work simply by explaining them in terms of those principles we talked about before, set of all and set of none. He shows, on the other hand, that the other twelve do not work by taking different examples in which two premises of the same kind yield one conclusion and two premises of a different kind are compatible with an entirely opposite conclusion. And that shows that such syllogisms are useless, they're not really syllogisms, they only seem to be syllogisms, all right? Now, I've explained it in very general, abstract terms. I think we need to look at a couple of examples. First of all, we're going to look at an example of a good syllogism. Secondly, we're going to look at a bad one. Now, we can't do better than look at what Aristotle writes. Aristotle writes, if A is predicated of all B, and B of all C, A must be predicated of all C we have already explained what we mean by predicated of all now this is what aristotle is doing he gives a first proposition a is set of all b and we know that that means all b is a every b is a and that means that a belongs to everything that b belongs to the next proposition says B is predicated of all C, Now, what that means is every C is B. Whatever C belongs to, B belongs to. Thus it's obvious that everything that C belongs to, A also belongs to. A concrete example is the one we gave in our previous chart. If every three-sided figure has angles equal to 180 degrees, and every triangle is a three-sided figure, then just by the meaning of set of all, set of every one, it's clear that every triangle has 180 degrees. So that's a concrete example of a perfect syllogism. Now on the other hand, Aristotle gives the following example of a syllogism that does not work. He writes, If the first term belongs to the middle, but the middle to none of the last, there will be no syllogism between the extremes. An example of a universal affirmative relation between the extremes, we may take the terms animal, man, and horse. Of the universal negative relation, the terms animal, man, and stone. Now that's from Aristotle's text, and that takes a lot of unpacking. This is what he's saying. If I've got the two following propositions, every B is A and no C is B, nothing follows from them. They do not go to make up a syllogism of any kind. And we can tell that this is the case because if we grant that the premises are true, it's possible for opposite conclusions to be true. Now, Aristotle, he says, take the terms animal, man, horse, animal, man, stone. What he's doing is he's indicating to us how we would show that by building two different possible, but it turns out, erroneous syllogisms. For example, if we put together these two premises, no stone is a man, and every man is an animal, it also happens to be true that no stone is an animal. In other words, we have a universal denial, a universal affirmation, and this is compatible with a universal denial. But, if we take just one different term, but the same kind of premises arranged in the same way, we get a prospective conclusion that's the opposite of the previous one. Instead of a universal denial, a universal affirmation. So for example, if we say no horse is a man, and every man is an animal, it's not true to say that no horse is an animal. On the contrary, it's true to say every horse is an animal. That's the opposite kind of statement, the contrary kind of statement to no stone is an animal. Thus, this kind of possibility for a perfect syllogism, in which I've got the first premise as a universal affirmation and the second as a universal denial, does not yield a necessary conclusion. We could go on and go through all 16 of these possibilities and eliminate the bad 12 and find the four good ones, that would take too long and cover several lectures. So in the text that accompanies these lectures, we're going to go through those in detail. But for this lecture, I'd just like to take a look at the four perfect syllogisms as they are put on chart number five. On the chart, they're called syllogisms of the first figure. We're going to explain why they're called syllogisms of the first figure in just a moment. The syllogisms are given, and they have four different names, and we're also going to take some time to explain how those names work. The names are Barbara, Celarent, Darii, and Ferio. What we need to do when we go through this is to look at the names mnemonic devices for remembering the perfect syllogisms and label the parts of the syllogism. Let's take a look at the first syllogism, Barbara. It has two propositions, two premises, one conclusion. But you'll notice it only has three terms. Each term is used twice. The term that is used in both premises B is called the middle term. It is also the case that the middle term is the subject of one premise and the predicate in the other. The term which is predicated of the middle term, A, is called the major term. It's called the major term because what is predicated has more the nature of a universal. It seems to be more universal than what is a subject. The word major means greater, more universal. The term of which the middle is predicated, C, is therefore called the minor term, the lesser term. Now, in the conclusion, the major term, A, is always predicated of the minor term, C. The proposition with the major term in it, in this case, every B is A, is called the major premise. The proposition with the minor term in it, in this case every C is B, is called the minor premise. In the example we used before, the middle term was three-sided figure, the major term was has 180 degrees, the minor term was triangle. The major premise was every three-sided figure has 180 degrees, the minor premise Every triangle is three-sided. Now, if we continue to look at that chart, we notice that each name works as follows. The vowels in the names represent the quantity and quality of the propositions. Recall that statements were symbolized by letters, the universal affirmation by an A, the universal denial by an E, the particular affirmation by an I, the particular denial by an O. In the names of the perfect syllogisms, we see that the first letter is a vowel which represents the kind of proposition or statement which is the major premise. The second vowel represents the kind of proposition or statement which is the minor premise. And the third vowel tells us what kind of statement the conclusion is. Finally, we can say that the first letters of these names are chosen by simply going through the consonants, the first consonants of the alphabet. So Barbara begins with a B, Celerant with a C, Darii with a D, we skip E since that's a vowel, and we go to F to get Ferio. That's all we're going to talk about with that chart. Now we're going to talk about the imperfect syllogisms. One thing we need to remember, however, recall about that perfect syllogism, is that B, the middle term, was always the predicate in one proposition, the minor proposition, the minor premise, and subject in the other premise, the major premise. Now, Aristotle refers to the position of the middle term in the premises of a syllogism as the figure of the syllogism. The figure of a syllogism is determined by the position of the middle term in the premises. Now, in the perfect syllogism, the middle term is not only the term which connects the subject and the predicate that results in a conclusion, it also has the middle position in predication. Predicate in one premise, subject in another. But in the imperfect syllogisms, the middle term has a different position. It is either subject in both premises or it's the predicate in both premises. In fact, we could say this. The reason why the imperfect syllogisms are imperfect is because, even though the conclusion follows necessarily, the middle term not having the middle position in predication makes it difficult to see that the conclusion follows. There are three possibilities for the position of the middle term, and so Aristotle says there are three figures of the syllogism. In chart number six, we see the arrangements of those figures. Aristotle calls the perfect syllogisms, syllogisms of the first figure. In the first figure syllogisms, The middle term is, as we said before, subject in one premise, predicate in another. In the second-figure syllogisms, the middle term is the predicate in both premises. Whereas in the third-figure syllogism, the middle term is the subject in both premises. The first-figure syllogisms are always perfect. Second- and third-figure syllogisms are always